Welcome to the Therapy Evolved Podcast, where we discuss integrating primitive virtues into the context of a modern world. And today I have with me a very special guest, Lachey Chatham, who is a student at the University of New Orleans in Human Health Promotion, I hope I got that right, as well as a fitness trainer with Boqua. Yes, So what I'm going to do without uh, taking up too much of your time with my running mouth is I'm going to turn it over to Lachey and have her tell you a little bit about her uh, background and experience, and then I'll interrupt when I get way too curious to keep my mouth shut. So here we go. Uh, welcome aboard, Lachey. Thank you. Thank you. I am definitely honored and delighted to have been selected for an interview. Awesome. So I guess let's start off. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, well, I'm currently 33 years old. My son is 14, which is something that a lot of people like to know. You know, I'm, I'm still very young and I have a teenager and it's yes. kind of like, wow, wow. <laughs> I'm a parent of a puberty growing person. It's wild. Um, I moved to New Orleans two years ago, actually two years ago this fall. Um, to pursue a much-needed education. Sure. Um, about six years ago, as of as of tomorrow, it would be six years ago. I recovered from a very traumatic health issue um, that led me down this road to want to better my life in a, in a very incredible way. Sure. Um. So it was a brain tumor, and it was very quick. Discovered it one day, and they did a they did a CAT scan, and said, "Hey, um, I assume you know about this brain tumor." I'm like, no, actually, no, I didn't. I had no idea, and it was kind of, it was a blow. Was That's really, quite an assumption. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I had gone in. It's like I'm having these migraines, and the guy said, "Okay, let's do a CAT scan." They called me later that day. All right, can you come in tomorrow and let's let's talk about your results? So I go in. I've got a friend with me, and it already in my mind, I'm thinking, "What you want to bet? It's going to be a brain tumor." How'd you guess? Uh, I just a little morbid. <laughs> okay. A morbid thinking process. So you, you, you bet on black and the roulette table. Yeah, I said, prepare for the worst, hope for the best. And so I, I prepared myself mentally to get the worst case scenario, which for me at the time was what you want to bet. It's a brain tumor. Sure. So I go in, I'm sitting down, I'm nervous, so, so nervous. And the guy walks in, doesn't even really make eye contact oh, with no. me. He's not even my doctor. He's the nurse practitioner. And he comes in with a folder, he lays it out, it's not even looking. And, and he says, well, I, I just assume you knew about the left occipital meningioma. I'm like... Okay, I heard Oma at the end of that, and I know just enough about medical terminology because my mom's a nurse. I know Oma means tumor. Yeah. So I'm like, I knew it. So knew it. it's kind of like, uh, you know, happy Tuesday, you got cancer, sign here for me, will you? Yeah, that was pretty much how it went. It's like he just rattled it off so quickly, and it, it took me a second to really comprehend, and I just caught that last little wow. bit, the Oma. I'm like, yep, yeah, all right, I know Oma means tumor. So, huh. I knew, I knew, and I, I kind of lost it. I, I checked out of, I checked sure. out of myself in, in that moment. My friend kind of took over talking to the doctor, um, and I was probably a week just out of my mind, sure. like, oh my gosh, I've got this brain tumor, and I, I self-destructed in a way. Um, but it, it grew very quickly. It was benign, uh, but it did grow very quickly, and it caused a lot of kind of peripheral issues. Sure. I was having severe migraines, um, seizures. Uh, memory impairment, uh, incredible depression, which I was already struggling with it before. Sure. 
but it just got worse and worse and worse. And after a span of about two months, um, we went to see a neurosurgeon. He said, all right, well, uh, come in next week. And as of September 29th, which is tomorrow, tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> uh, six years ago, I had emergency brain surgery. Um, and I woke up. You see, I say this, and a lot of people hesitate to believe me, but it really is true. The person that existed in, in this life with the brain tumor before the brain tumor came out, she doesn't exist anymore. Sure. I woke up from surgery a totally different person. I had to relearn how to think, how to feel what was important to me, what my priorities were in life, you know, my goals, you know, how I felt about where I was in my life, you know, and learning how to be comfortable in my own skin again. It was literally like becoming a new person. I was born six years ago. This version of me was born six years ago. And so it's been a very exciting journey ever since then. You know, there's a belief element to that, sure, but you can't argue that when something disrupts the patterns of your brain, the neurochemistry in it, just the space of the hardware, and then someone goes in and cuts it out, um, it's impossible for some things not to change. So would you say that the event itself made things easier for you, getting it taken out? Yes, yes, in a lot of ways. I do have uh, some, I guess you would call them... uh, long-lasting side effects that I'll never really be able to recover from. Okay. Like I had a little bit of vision impairment, uh, which just means I can't see as clearly as I used to uh, because it was in the occipital lobe, which is for vision, uh, typically. Um, I have a little bit of a hearing impairment. Um, that was from the seizure activity. And my working memory is, is not as good as it should be, but that was just um, the doctor told me that with all the seizures and just where it was located, um, you can have, you can have some memory impairment um, just because the tumor can press on sure. brain tissue and you don't you can't really tell which direction that pressure is. Sure, is going. Know, we kind of know what organs do what, but we don't exactly have a clean crayon level. Exactly, there's no map that says okay, so if you've got this little thing here, it's going to affect this thing here. It doesn't work like that. Sure. I mean, we kind of know which where the concentration is, but it's not isolated. It's not in neat little like uh, state map kind of sectors for us. Yeah. So. But yeah, definitely, this whole experience was, I guess, eye-opening for me. Oh, which even if it hadn't been a brain tumor, if it had been any other traumatic event, I, I can just imagine that going through something like this opened you to consider alternatives. Sure. Uh, alternative ways of thinking, alternative ways of living, because when you're basically at rock bottom, where else do you have to go but up? And, you know, I'm thinking here, and um, if I was an awful person, how would I take that, right? If, or if I was somebody who was really unhappy with my position, how would I try to discount um, the positive, awesome information we're about to go through? My first thought is, like, that sort of, determinism versus free will kind of um, base philosophy kind of difference people have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I could see someone's argument being like, well, you know, Lachey, you just got lucky because you had the right pressure at the right spot in the right region of your brain and somebody cut it out and stitched you back up and now everything became easy for you. So where do you get off telling uh, me how to help? Uh, well, in some ways, yeah, I was lucky. But I don't think that luck is this concept that just picks and chooses. 
Sure. Um, I think we all have the capacity to experience all facets of life at different times. Um, I, I wouldn't ever really consider myself to be fortunate before then. Sure. I was on federal disability. I was unable to work. I lived with my mother. I was a very sick person. Sure. I was very sick. And I struggled for pretty much all of my life from puberty until that day. And even after that, I did struggle for a couple of years because, I mean, you think I was already at rock bottom. You can't just levitate into the stratosphere and suddenly become, you know, successful and happy and life is perfect. It just simply doesn't happen So that it's, way. it's not like you woke up off the table and became Superwoman? Yeah, no, no. Okay. I mean, I kind of felt like Superwoman. <laughs> okay. I mean, I've, I've always felt a little... Uh, uh, bionic, because <laughs> okay. I do have a metal plate now. Okay. So I'm all, my first thought, first time I ever went into an airport, was like, am I going to sit off? <laughs> did you? The metal, no, I did okay, not, cool. because it's titanium, and, awesome. and they don't set off metal detectors. So Terrorists don't listen to that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, don't, oh. Li- don't listen to that at all. Um, so I was very fortunate for that. I will say this while we're on the subject of the uh, metal plate. I love to tell this joke about myself. It's just the greatest thing. So I have a metal plate. And it's attached to my skull with four screws. Two of them are loose. loose. Oh, it's so good. It's so naturally. Yeah. I have two screws loose. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. I love being able to tell the joke about myself. <laughs> now we need is a surgical procedure that involves marbles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Then we'll, we'll have the full medical oh, yeah, taken yeah. care of. I, 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 I've been telling that joke. Once I figured it out for myself, it's like, there's no way I can't. I can't not. Sure. That. You know, and that's another thing is even when you're experiencing a lot of just bad, you know, life's not good, you're, you've got health problems, relationship problems, you're not able to work or you're not happy in your work, whatever it is that's wrong in your life, you've got to be able to keep a light spirit about it. Sure. Because if you take yourself too seriously, if you take your problems too seriously, you limit yourself Absolutely. from being able to rise back out of it. And that was one of the, like, major I guess self-therapeutic things that I did was just trying to keep a, a happy, you know, comical uh, perspective sure. of everything. And from the nerd side, um, yeah. the amygdala, right? That's a part of your body, uh, your brain rather. It's towards the back. And if you think of the brain in very, very general terms, first you got a basic group of um, cells that told you how to move into a direction. So movement, basic survival. And then you have the sort of fight, flight, freeze type, very instinctive responses to outside stuff. And then beyond that, that third layer you build is sort of your um, cortical area, your ability to think and process and make conscious decisions. But somewhere back in the middle, the emotional state piece, uh, you have the amygdala. And what it does um, is that it agitates you with what it believes to be the right amount of fear and stress and tension so that you will get up and not become lion food, or you will um, make yourself go throw that spear that day and bring the deer home to camp, right? Um, Or make you go do the extra work to find the clean water source that's not infested with crocodiles. (laughs) And um, that serves you when your only thing triggering that part of your brain is the outside world. But when we got too smart for our own good and we started thinking independently of stimuli, then we started to think negatively, and that negative thinking rattles the amygdala around, and then we get the same negative chemicals as if we were actually in danger. Yeah. Right? So keeping a sense of humor is, as I see it, I, you know, I could certainly see that playing a role in diminishing your amygdala from getting too active. Yeah, definitely. I mean, 
I've had many friends and people that I would just meet randomly and have conversations. It's like, how can you keep such a such a positive uh, outlook when, with everything that you that you're going through? And I mean, of course, you know, this has been years ago when I was still really struggling to come back out of the the mire that I was in before. It's like, what other choice do I have? I mean, I get to choose at all times how I want to respond, how I want to react to these things that don't feel that they you know these bad thoughts that I recognize as bad thoughts like this is really silly that I'm thinking so poorly of myself because I woke up and my knee was hurting and I didn't want to get out of bed so I didn't go for a walk and I and I decided to overeat at lunch and overeat at dinner and snack and snack and snack and then I go to bed and I feel miserable because I ate too much because I didn't get up and actually you know and it's just a vicious cycle um so I mean I had to kind of oh uh, what's the what's the way that was the Fake it till you make it. Sure. That was that was something I kept telling myself. Okay, well, you know what? I know. I yes, your knee hurts. Yes, you're really hungry. And that, that chocolate cake that Mama just baked me <laughs> looks so good. And she makes these wonderful, wonderful homemade buttermilk biscuits. But I, and I just could eat them and eat them and eat them. But I have goals. Sure. You know, I can either let myself emotionally eat to deal with these problems, or I can let myself just lay up and watch TV. Because I'm stressed out and I just want to zone out and forget that there are problems, or I can do something more constructive. I can talk to a friend and tell some jokes. That's therapy. That's therapy. Just sitting and having a simple conversation. You don't have to be drinking. You don't have to be eating. You don't have to be doing anything. Just simply having a conversation and just don't allow yourself to stay. That's what I I had to live by. That and that was that was the only way I survived for a long time. And it, it's interesting because when we learn language as a species, words became our program, right? And if you think of a human brain like a computer, what you program it to be, within the limits of its hardware, it will do. And if you're uh, coding in a bunch of negativity, yep. more nerd talk, guys, sorry. You know, if you're, <laughs> that's not the last of it. But if you're coding in negativity, that's going to be your process. And if you, t- you say um, talking with friends is therapy. And if you look at what therapy actually is, you sit in a room and you talk with someone. Yep. So, I mean, I'm not saying that you can always use your friends instead of a professional because there's an element of, like, parameters to the coding. But, yeah, good subjects, good um, code, good coding, good information. Uh, that, that carries me to something else that I had to experience throughout the course of my own kind of uh, transformation is... While I was on disability, um, I, I, you know, I had Medicaid, Medicare, I had access to a lot of things, however, didn't have transportation. Okay. And just for the town I was living in at the time, it would have been a mile, maybe a mile and a half walk just to catch a bus stop. Sure. Um, and that was not possible for me because I was a sick person. Um, I even, I was diagnosed with lupus at one point, and so I had extraordinary sun sensitivity. And this is before and, the... Uh, no, this actually happened after, after the tumor. Okay. Yeah. And so to go to therapy was basically an impossibility for me. Sure. Um, there were even a couple of doctors that I was not able to regularly visit for a while because I didn't have reliable transportation. Sure. So I had to kind of start relying on myself for the things I knew I needed. And the big thing that I knew I needed, especially after the, the, having the brain surgery, was I needed the therapy. I needed someone or some avenue to help me work out the conflict that still existed in my head about what I remembered feeling before, what I was 
what I was programmed to do before, and then going through the process of rewiring and you know figuring out, okay, I get this instinctual feeling like I want to respond this way and I don't like it, sure. so what do I do instead? And in the absence of a therapist, you know, you know, the couch and nail and we talk and talk. In the absence of that, all I had available to me was a few small select friends. But what makes a difference is your expectations of what you're going to get from those conversations. Yes, you can have conversations with friends that can be very, very beneficial, especially mentally if you're struggling with some things. Whereas they can even in some cases be more beneficial than seeing an actual therapist. It's just it depends on your expectations and what you're hoping to actually get. Your friends can't write your prescription. Sure. If you're looking for a quick fix, your friends are not going to be able to give you that. A pill's not going to be able to give you that. What's going to help you is your own mind, your own willingness to accept that maybe you don't have all the answers. Maybe there is something someone else can do, either by listening or by talking, to help you out of your, you know, whatever your funk is that you're trapped in. And for me, for a long time, all I had available was these, these few friends. And it was immensely helpful. It really was. I lost a few friends because I would go to them with the wrong kind of expectations. Like, I'm having a bad day. I need you to talk to me and, and help me deal with these problems. And then it became toxic. Sure. So having a good understanding and expectation of what you're going to get, what they're going to get out of your interactions is helpful, is very, very helpful. And I think about, you know, certainly there were therapists before there was ever a word for it. Right? Yeah, exactly. You know? um, the oldest form of it, we probably called them shamans. You know, and part of the training to become a, a therapist, I mean, anyone can dig through research journals and learn about how the brain works and learn about CBT interventions or Adlerian interventions or any number of amazed theories. But a large amount of our training is our ability to set boundaries and partition how much involvement we um, find ourselves getting into with the stories we take in. And so to have friends that maybe don't know how to set those proper limits can be bad news for you and for them. But if you're lucky enough to have people in your life that know how to kind of cut you off and give you like a healthy dose of distance to do your own work. Yes, absolutely. I'm glad you, I'm glad you said that. Um, my, my bestest friend in the entire world, um, she, we really lucked out to find each other as friends because she has her own plethora of health issues and mental issues. Um, she has multiple personalities, and uh, you know, so that that leads to she experienced a lot of trauma as a child. Sure. Um, so between the two of us, we really were a balance to each other. And so she had been to therapist. She kind of already knew the spiel that most therapists were going to give her, and wasn't really thrilled with how it was working for her. And so for me, as a person who was kind of to a, to a point self educated about some of these things. I was able to offer a balance to her, and she was able to offer a balance to me. Sure. And so you're not going to find that kind of dynamic in just anybody. I mean, sure. kind of, like it goes back to the expectation. What do you really expect to get from having a conversation with this person? Are they going to be open? Are they going to actually listen and care enough to tell you when you need to reel it in and, and then leave you in your own space? Or are they going to try to come down on you and uh, direct you and tell you what you need to do and then chastise you if you don't? expectations. One thing I find too when you're socializing with anyone, we have a lot more power than we think to set the tone, to set the stage, right? It's so easy for people to get into this automatic small talk run 
about like, oh, how was the weather? How did the sports team do? How are the kids? How's the dog? Yeah. Um, you know, and all this other stuff. And you keep it very surface level because maybe most of your mind is absorbed with your own tasks. Maybe you never thought to get any deeper with this person. But if you do um, kind of practice mindfulness, take a step back, you can certainly go, okay, expectation. What am I expecting out of this person? You know what? I see something there beyond what I'm getting and beyond what they're getting. Maybe let me put myself out there a little bit and try to take this conversation deeper. Yeah. It's know? a willingness to venture out into the unknown. Sure. Um, I'm glad you said mindfulness. You're, you're cueing me for these things I was telling myself. Okay, I want to make sure that I mention this. Um, mindfulness was a practice that I kind of developed for myself. Um, I, I called it mindful meditation. Sure. Um, because I found meditation itself as a practice I was horrible at. Uh, to be able to sit still and really still for, for you know any extended amount of time was really, really difficult, especially living with my mother, with my son, and, you know, it was just a very chaotic environment. Uh, so in, in my own way, I developed my own way of meditating while still being a part of the environment and accomplishing, you know, whatever tasks that I needed to do or whatever. So I called it mindful meditation. So basically, it was just becoming aware. Every action I took, every thought that I had, uh, every emotional reaction I had to something, I just made myself aware. Okay, this just happened and this was my reaction. Why? Is this how I want to react? Is this how I need to react? And just kind of analyzing in, in each moment why I was doing the things that I was doing. And if those actions, those things I was doing, if that was the person I wanted to be. Did you, were you self-taught in that kind of? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, I pretty much only had one yoga book. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I did later get a book about chakras that I read through and that kind of gave me a different perspective. But um, aside from that, all I had access to was Google. I didn't even really have a computer or, or consistent access to the internet. I just had my phone and Google. Okay. And so, I you know, and then that's, of course... As, you know, students and professionals, we always, like, with a grain of salt, if you're going to sure. go on Google, just be aware that you're going to come up with some real cookery. Sure. Um, but, yeah, I did a lot of research, and I came across, you know, meditation. So I was like, okay, maybe I should try to meditate. And then I come across mindfulness. I'm like, well, mindfulness, what does that really mean? So we've gotten in a really good direction here. And, uh, we're really digging into your background. I love that because I feel like when the background's understood, mm-hmm. all the questions we ask directly are going to have a proper context, and that's going to make it way more powerful. I want to stop with the meditation for a second. Okay. All right. Um, so the chakras. Before the listeners start thinking, uh-oh, here we have some granola, woo-woo, tie-dye chick. Oh, my God. Uh, they're, I'm not um, saying that the seven orders of them and the, the flowery art for them is real. Um, but I will say that there is some neurological evidence backing this idea that chakras came from. If you study um, Wim Hof, the Iceman, and uh, Dr. Pierre Cavell, at, uh, in Holland, they actually study how the visual cortex and how um, work with meditation and with breath exercises actually cause uh, norepinephrine increase and they cause like visual stimulation, which is sort of what you would see described in the old um, texts and sutras that talk about chakras. So I'm not here to tell you as listeners that yes, you know, the yoga program from 4,000 years ago in the Upanishads is legit 100%. I'm not going there. But there is some definite correlation. So, of course, with a grain of salt and with the understanding of scientific measurement that they had back then, 
but there's absolutely a scientific link to this idea of chakras, to visual stimulation, and to neural overload. Yeah, and it actually does tie in together with the, you know, talking about the mindful meditation. Sure. Um, through, through this whole process, you know, of doing yoga and doing the mindful meditation, and I had these two books, a yoga book and, you know, um, a chakra book, and doing this oh, reading. Oh, you're cheating. You said you had one. Well, oh, yeah, and I said I did have a chakra book that I read through, but it was less about application, more sure. of just like, okay, here's some diagrams, and here's how these these things. It was very in-depth and very hard to read. Um but just through the process of doing the yoga and reading the books and going through this this intense process, you know, I think of existence is not just your body, it's not just your mind. Each part of you has to work together sure. equally for you to be like, um, well, what's, what's a good word for it, you know, uh, homeostasis. Homeostasis, as, you know, people who have been educated in science, uh, is the balance between the internal and the external. Well, when you think your mind and your body interact with each other, if you're having bad thoughts, you're going to feel bad. If your body is ailing in some way, you're going to think bad. You're going to be depressed. You're going to be stressed. Well, and even more than that, you know, you think of your spirit. Um, I'm not a religious person, but I am a spiritual person. And so I have pursued um, enhancing my own spiritual feelings in addition to my mind and my body. And so when these three things, when I finally got them working together, I really felt complete for the first time. Sure. And that was the first step to me saying, okay, I need an education. I have to, I have to go, I have to do something with my life now. I'm not sick anymore. And so what am I doing? What am I doing with my life now that I'm not sick? And that was the first step for me. It's like, okay, so I want to go to college. Where am I going to go? What degree am I going to pursue? So why New Orleans? Where'd you come from before? Monroe, Louisiana. Monroe, okay, so it's not that far. Not that far. It's about four and a half hours if you drive really fast and don't stop. Okay. And good luck with those speed traps. Oh, yeah. I don't take the speed traps. I go through Mississippi. Oh, you know the difference. Yeah, yeah. I do. Okay. I Um, never go through Louisiana. Dear law enforcement, we are not advocating (laughs) crime or breaking of a sanction. Also, um, forget the titanium thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, There is... It's... Okay, so I come from Monroe. Um, It's my home, so I have those feelings, but Monroe is a very, very small town compared. For people that are outside of the United States or outside of the South... Describe um, Louisiana, North Louisiana versus South Louisiana a bit, if you could. Oh, goodness. Imagine it's it's a polar difference between, say, people who live near the equator versus people who live in the Arctic Circle. Okay. I mean, culture in Louisiana especially is so, so variable. Like, we can go one street over and encounter a family of a different culture, sure. right? Um, go across the lake, like bunch of train, and you're in a totally different culture. Go up about another hour, totally different culture. I mean, the further you get away from the Gulf, the more vastly different than it is. Certainly. And Monroe is technically in the Bible Belt. Yeah. And so that's kind of what I grew up in, was this very, very traditional, conservative, don't think outside of the box, keep, keep it in, keep it in close. Um, well, what led me to choose New Orleans of all places was that my son's father okay. uh, is stationed here in the military. Okay. And, you know, and, and throughout my whole process of being sick, my son really did suffer a whole lot because he wasn't able to really have me as an active part of his life for a long time. And he was getting just old enough where he was starting to act out and rebel. And in my mind, the only solution was this, this child needs his father. And so I started looking at schools in New Orleans. And UNO was the only campus that offered 
on-campus family housing. Okay. So it's like, okay, well, that's it. There you go. Uh, there, that's packed up a U-Haul and brought sure. it down. And if you're anything like a lot of other listeners, myself included, and that mountain and terror of student loan debt is uh, <laughs> creeping in, as universities go, UNO is actually one of the more reasonable, and they've in- implemented a lot of reforms lately that have made national news for trying to make college more affordable. Yes. I mean, so. I, I've having never had a college experience prior to this, um, I, I really do feel lucky in a lot of ways that I was able to get uh, moved down here and enrolled as quickly as I did, because it all happened literally in a span of about two weeks. Oh, wow. Two okay. weeks from the time I was told I was accepted, got the U-Haul truck, moved down, moved into my apartment, classes started the next week. Wow. Yeah, and so it was It was very rapid. I mean, of course, that's very unusual. That is not typical to how how sure. it goes, but when you, when you put the effort into it, anything is possible. And that, that applies to any situation, not just coming to college, you know. If you want it bad enough. And you know how. Yeah, you, you do whatever you got to do, talk to whoever you got to talk to, make phone calls, send emails, you make it up. So thank you for sharing that background up to this point, <laughs> you know. Um, and tomorrow marks the six-year anniversary yes. of waking up on the table as a new woman. A little bit of a birthday, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what kind of celebration do you have planned? Um, well, Thursdays are my busy school day, <laughs> Tuesdays and Thursdays, and so I'll be in, I'll be in class pretty okay. much all day. Uh, but when I get out, um, I have a friend who we're going to have like a little bit of a ladies' night okay. out. Probably just go and have a nice dinner somewhere. Um, what I would do. Long time ago, before I moved here for, for a birthday celebration, we'd go out, we'd be hammered, you know, dress up and go hit the club and drink a drink a drink. But now it's like I'm a little too old for that. Um, I'm, a, I'm a little too experienced and a little too knowledgeable about how detrimental that really is to your mental health to engage in that kind of behavior. Um, so while I have a drink, I'll have a nice dinner at the gym. And, and go to bed early because I still have responsibilities. Sure. And just in take comfort in knowing that I'm alive another day, another year. And I know that you know I could picture some people like, oh my God, you're going to go to the gym and go early, and you know, and go to bed early on a celebration day that's practically your birthday. What are you thinking? No. And I guess if you're not used to living in a lifestyle that is uh, adaptive and healthy and filled with responsibility, but also very fulfilling and fun, then it looks like it's an act of suffering every day to do it. But once you, I mean, maybe in the beginning, I would say. Anytime you're trying to change one behavior to another, you know, making an improvement, it is a great effort to retrain your habit. Sure. You know, it, you know they, there's um, science, there are research that says it takes 21 days to change a behavior. I want to cut you off there because <laughs> it, it's bogus, unfortunately. It's bogus? It is. Oh. Um, and it's not about the days. It's about the number of neural repetitions. Okay. So they say 21 days because they got a group of people, did some short-term research, bam, they performed well enough on the test, they hit the alpha levels, which is to determine if it worked or not, guys, for science terms. <laughs> and um, they said, oh, 21 days it is, bam, that's the, let's publish a book and make a bunch of money, and let's pollute the narrative for 20 years. But it's actually neural repetitions. But yeah, so, but there, I didn't mean to be... uh, Oh, no, 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 it's totally fine. I was not aware that that had been proven to be bogus, uh, but in the same note, I would say that in my own experience, it's change of this caliber. It's not something that just happens overnight. Sure. It takes consistent 
uh, effort. And it's not going to happen in a day. It's not going to happen in a week. It just simply takes time. And the harder you try and the more you're willing to work towards whatever your goal is, it becomes easier and easier and easier. But yeah, it is hard at first, especially if you're not used to going to the gym, you're not used to the kind of sensations that, you know, lifting weights or even running a mile or whatever it is, if you're not used to that sensation, some people would say it's very painful. Sure. And so, and it's not even just the physical aspect of it, it's mental, because then it starts to feel like you're torturing yourself. Why am I doing this? I'm perfectly happy to sit on the couch. Especially when the tangible results that you're hoping, that maybe you were hoping to see from exercise... They don't come for a few months, and sometimes they don't come for a year. And so when you're feeling miserable right now, and yesterday, and the day before, but you want to achieve those goals, it's really disheartening if you're new, I think, because you're like, my body doesn't look any different, I'm in pain, this is horrible. Yeah, Um, we were talking briefly before, and you you said a buzzword, beach body. I was, in fact, a beach body coach for about a minute. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, not to say that uh, for some people, the beach body programs, you know, it does work for some people. Um, it caters to a very specific lifestyle, and it's, frankly, one, you've got to be able to afford it. Sure. So not to knock the program, but we talk about the whole 21 days. Um, it's this consistent effort. To be successful with any of the Beachbody programs, you've got to live the kind of life where their programs work for you. And that's, sure. I tried it. <laughs> I'll admit it. It's, no, that's okay. No one. Being willing to stick that disc into your into your DVD player and actually stand in front of your TV and do it. And for me, for some people it works, I'm sure. But I need the social interaction also. I need to be in the gym. I need to know I'm not the only one. I need to get feedback, not even just like vocal, you know, verbal feedback, but just to be in a space with other people who are also doing the same thing that I'm doing. That, to me, was far more beneficial with continuing, doing that consistent working towards a behavior. Um, That's what kept me going more than sticking a DVD in the TV. Sure. Shakes. You know, yeah, just oh, silly oh the that. shakes! Oh my god! Okay, <laughs> <laughs> what soapbox do I get on first? Oh. <laughs> yeah, um, I I basically convinced myself I needed to stop when I found I had three boxes of shakes that I wasn't drinking, and now I was expecting another one the next week. And I'm like, really, this is just a waste of my money now because sure. you have to be about the shake life. And I'm sorry, I like to chew my food. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's see, I guess what we'll where we'll start with that is sort of like. The idea of the discipline and, and things like that. And I want to kind of inject a therapist perspective into that idea of discipline. Because absolutely, the more you do something, the easier it gets. That being said, if it was that easy, everybody who tried it would succeed. Right? And so a lot of the, um, the health industry, the, the guru industry, things like that, you don't really hear about the mechanics of why people fail. In, in reality, you'll hear a lot of excuses for failure or things like that, or not tolerating people's failure as anything more than an excuse. But the mechanism of the failure, I think, um, very often you have a inability to control your impulses to the degree that your brain can continually sustain, paired with people not replenishing those resources. Right. So we know through study with relative certainty, about as certain as brain science gets, you know, that glucose, unless you switch for ketones, 
glucose, which is sugar products taken in through fruits, vegetables, things like that, um, are spent to resist uh, an impulse. So we all uh, it's very commonly known that the prefrontal cortex is activated in the front of your brain to stop you from engaging in something you might otherwise desire. But what we don't always know is that to do that has a cost in glucose. And I almost call it like the gas tank metaphor, where um, you know every time you have to say no to something, or you have to say yes to something you don't want to say yes to, you spend a little bit more and spend a little bit more and spend a little bit more. But then when it's out, the next thing you try to say no to or say yes to that you don't want to won't work out for you, you know? And it's just like um, we see people beat themselves up for it all the time. But it's, I mean, it would make, if you're driving and you can't go another mile because your gas tank is done and you pulled over on the road, you wouldn't really kick yourself unless you missed an opportunity to refill it. But if there's a hole in your gas tank you didn't know about and you were driving and you ran out, well, of course, you're out of gas. That makes sense, right? But we think somehow that discipline is an all-or-nothing, have-or-have-not kind of thing. You know? And I think if people can stop and realize, wait a minute, there's definitely a resource management thing going on here. And especially when you're not disciplined, putting more time in to develop that glucose flow and start to provide the motivation energy you need to succeed is really important, maybe even more important than achieving the activity, right? So that's, I really want people to have that understanding when you think about, oh, yeah, yeah, just discipline. And if you feel like, oh, I don't have any discipline, well, you may just not have the resources. That, uh, that kind of brings me to, to tie in with what I had said earlier about having expectations, reasonable yeah. expectations. I mean, for me, in my experience, uh, you know, I woke up from surgery and I was obese. I was really, really sick. Um, uh, uh, wonky left knee, so you know, physically not able to really move as well. Um, still struggling with depression, anxiety. I had a mountain of problems sure. that I I was finally able to recognize. Okay, I needed to work on these things. My diet was awful, absolutely awful. Um, water was never in my vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> Unsweet tea was never in the vocabulary. Um, lots of processed foods. Very inactive. You know methods of thinking about the world about myself and so the first you know couple of times I tried to I guess amend some of those things I was trying to do it all at once sure and it's like okay so I'm gonna I'm gonna clean up my diet I'm gonna start walking I'm gonna start working out I'm gonna you know do yoga I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do that and blah blah blah, blah. and I got overwhelmed sure and and so I I had to reel myself back in because you know again I had very little support and so it's like, okay, so let's just do one step at a time. Let's clean up the diet one step at a, at a time. And I actually found that as my diet got a little cleaner and a little more balanced, a little more natural, I felt better. Not sure. just in my physical body, but also in my mind because, you know, in hindsight, and it, of course because we've been educated about these things, you know, you're no longer as toxic. Sure. If your body is toxic, your mind is toxic. That whole mind-body connection. The inflammation piece as well. Yeah. When you were talking about the, the weight issue and the processed food, I want to kind of, especially with in terms of understanding the limits of your, we, we call it, we throw the word discipline out there, yeah. like, like candy, but the, the resources you have at your disposal to achieve a goal, right? And if your body's in poor shape, if your thinking is out of whack, if you have problems, if you have issues, if you have very little support, each of those problems pulls on your reserves, 
And so trying to achieve great results before you've freed up your energy levels and reserves, probably not going to happen for most people, right? So the first thing for you, like, I always love the, um, the old conundrum, right, that you hear a lot in impoverished areas. And this is a bit of a tangent, but it leads back in. I don't have a job because I don't have a car. And I don't have a car because I don't have any money. And I don't have any money because I don't have a job, but I don't have a car, so I can't get a job. And so when you're in that endless loop of, you know, unsatisfaction, you have to find the, the avenue of least resistance first to start getting some... Figure out what can you reasonably accomplish sure. on your own with what you have available right now. I actually just had a conversation with a girl, um, I guess two weeks ago, and she's also very sick right now. She's kind of asked me to to provide a little bit of guidance or just, you know, emotional support. So I've been doing that, and she's also on disability, unable to work, doesn't have a car, a single mom to a couple of kids, very young kids. And the very first thing I asked her was, like, how's your diet? Sure. She said, she said I'll just tell you right now, it's not that great. Yeah. Like, well, I can definitely relate to that. So let me just tell you what I did for myself, being on disability, depending on food stamps. Let me just tell you the little things, little little minor changes that I did to start because it's not going to be quick. I mean, sure. when you're on a very, very limited budget and you start to yeah. think of eating healthy, the first thing everyone wants to think about is all fresh food. And that's not always true. And But even in that same sure. note, people think that fresh fruit is just so much more expensive. Not, it's really not. Yeah. The problem gets to be is you, you stay in this habit of shopping for two weeks all at once and so you buy right. a big bag of apples and a big and bag half of, of them spoil before you get spoils. to it. Yeah. yeah. And so I make a habit now of still like I won't go once a week, I'll go twice a week. Sure. And I always do a majority of my shopping in the produce section. And my grocery bills tend to be a fraction sure. of what they ever were before. And of course, I'm not on disability anymore. Um, you know, however, being on a student budget, <laughs> student uh, budget, yeah, it's still kind of limited. But I do have a little more flexibility than I used to have. But you know, just being aware of what you're actually eating—that sure. box of Kraft mac and cheese. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So let's say that somebody, because this is as a fitness trainer and a nutrition coach, the realities of what people can afford, right? And especially since so. Food is food and supplementation and nutrition is such a co-opted process mm -hmm. where everyone wants in on your wallet yep. and wants in on your mindset so that they can get in on your wallet, right? So let's say you have the traditional um, awful diet. Um, we'll say like lots of bread, you know, we'll say, oh, but I'm eating whole grain, so it's better, right? Or uh, we've got the... Um, you know, frozen pizzas, ramen noodles, Mickey D's, right? Let's say you're dealing with somebody who makes, like, either minimum wage or is on, like, a welfare program or on a disability program, and they're in that zone. Where would you begin with them as far as their first steps to changing their diet? Well, number one, no more fast food. <laughs> right, because that's going to give you more money. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, you think, oh, it's a, it's a dollar burger. Sure. Even a dollar burger, you know, a burger off the dollar menu, you know, the two buns, the little, you know, hamburger patty and a pickle and a slab of mayonnaise soy, and mustard. Soybeans on mayonnaise, yeah, it's called oh yeah, so yeah. Whatever the, the sludge <laughs> that they put on these things. That one tiny little burger you can get for a dollar and you can get like four of them. It's like, holy crap, that's a meal, right? Sure. 
ends up being what? 1,200, 1,300, 1,400 calories? Sure. And they're Mostly, all pretty empty. Yeah, yeah. I was just saying. And not all calories are created equal. Yeah, they're totally not. When I first started in the Army and as a kickboxer and all this stuff, we always used to hear calories in, calories out. And, you know, that isn't untrue, but it's certainly not the whole picture. No, it's not. And, um, you know, because... Yeah, and so fast food has to go first. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, even though those four burgers, and they're super filling, and they're, they're super tasty, um, but they're super unhealthy. Sure. I mean, even if you get, I mean, not that McDonald's has this even as an option, even if you had the whole wheat bun, and you had, like, this fancy mayonnaise, and, like, an all-beef patty, and, you know, this perfect cheese, and it's well-balanced. It would still be a drop in the bucket. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so for that $4 plus tax, you can very easily go to a grocery store sure. and get for real healthy food. There are tons of videos that I've encountered on, you know, on YouTube. Okay. You know, and just a quick Google search will bring them up where people will show you for the $5 that we spent to go to McDonald's and get a meal, we went to the store and bought similar ingredients for maybe $1 or $2 more. Sure. And made three times as much food with leftovers. Yeah. Now, before we get into all that, I want to keep it specific here. Okay. Just assuming, because right. people are listening to us right now. <laughs> we want them to leave with some practical stuff, for okay. sure. And um, so the first thing is fast food has to absolutely yeah, go. fast food. Um, what is the next move you would make with them after that? Oh, after eliminating fast food, beverage choices. Yeah. Sodas have to go next. Sodas have yeah. to go. Um, I went from drinking basically a 12-pack of Coke a day to drinking only water and hot tea um, and juice. Um, to, to follow into the third thing, no fast food, watch what you drink, you know, because that's your consumption. But ignore buzzwords. Yes. Like the whole grain, low calorie. Low calorie is the worst thing because low calorie, low fat means that they've replaced, they've taken something sure. out and added something back in to make right. it powerful. Um, so ignore the buzzwords, but read the labels. Sure. Learn what to recognize in an ingredients label that's bad for you. High fructose corn syrup. Horrible, horrible. Anything that ends in OSE typically is, is pretty bad. Aspartame, absolutely terrible. Sucralose, um, OSE. Yeah, yeah. Anything that ends in OSE, anything like if you have to struggle to figure out, like, I don't know what this big chemical word means, typically means. That's a, that's a great, simple uh, solution for somebody who's just starting out. Because what I don't like to see in my own practice with people is they overwhelm themselves. Mm-hmm. One thing I'm a huge critic of is oh, calorie counting. I think yeah, that is... I, a, yeah. it's, it's really silly because, I mean, using the example of the four McDonald's burgers, a lot of people don't realize exactly how many calories come in a burger, but it's not exactly... It's not the calories that matter. Sure. If you had 1,300 calories of fiber, it wouldn't give you yeah. a big belly. No, right. really not. It's, it's not the calories that are bad. It's all the chemicals that come in those calories is what makes it bad. It's the balance between your proteins, your fats, and your carbs. If you're eating three, four, or even five meals a day that are really, really high in fat, really, really high in carbs, low in protein, or even, you know, devoid of dietary fiber, you may think you're getting what you need. Your belly's going to feel content. You're going to feel good. That's a great point. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, hunger for a second, right? We are trained from an evolution mechanism to recognize hunger in our stomach, right? Um, if your stomach hurts, that your body's telling you to get food. But there's a, in technology, with industrial farming, with um, these practices, we figured out how to shut up the stomach and starve the cells, right? 
Um, what happens when you shut up your stomach with empty calories is you're giving the stomach acid something to break down, right? But there's no nutrients after to go hit all the cells to replenish them. So you don't know because we've hijacked your own evolutionary warning system because you stuff something in there to distract it. You think, okay, I had this pot of ramen noodles. I'm okay. But the reality is your stomach has forgotten to give you any more warnings because it followed a red herring, you know? And exactly what uh, Lachey is talking about with not only chemicals, but with basic sort of make... And it's all chemical, right? Whether it's xanthan gum or just what happens when you break down a carbohydrate, it's all chemistry. Um, so don't, that can be its own buzzword if you're not careful because someone can say, it's all natural and there's no added chemicals. Well, you don't need added chemicals because if something's a simple carbohydrate, um, it can be perfectly natural if you crush it up between two rocks and bake it, but it's still going to destroy your body. Uh, cyanide is natural. Cocaine comes from a coca leaf. I don't recommend you do cocaine. <laughs> please, please don't. Please don't. <laughs> um, so hunger is very important to understand. And I just want to get that tangent in there because people think, as long as I shut up my stomach, I've satisfied my hunger. And no, 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 no. <laughs> to follow that up, sure. thirst. Thirst. A lot of people will confuse feelings of thirst with feelings of hunger. That was something I did for a long time because, um, and even I, I still have some days now where I'm really emotional, really stressed. You know, things have been, you know, uh, I'm in a state of upheaval emotionally or whatever sure. it is. Um, I'll eat a meal. And then an hour or maybe even two later, of, you know, I'm active. I'm moving around. I'm doing things. I really shouldn't be hungry again. But then I have to stop and think, okay, have I had anything? Have I had a glass of water? Today? And that's where the mindfulness comes in. Yeah, just having an awareness of the state of your own body. Sure. Like, I know I've eaten. It was a, it was a well-rounded meal. I need to drink a glass of water. And just just the act of drinking a glass of water may not quiet that, that sensation, but it puts something in there that gives you that fulfillment. At least it does for me. I mean, it's that habit of, okay, so I have this feeling, I'm not going to just poke food in. I'm going to drink first. Just drink a glass of water, drink a hot tea, drink a cold tea, and reassess after that instead of just poking more calories in. Absolutely. Um, and that, you know, I want to kind of finish asking you the basic <laughs> steps of what, right, but we can come back to this idea of hunger and what to do about it. Okay. So after um, fast food goes out the window, and after um, sugary drinks are gone, chemical loaded drinks, sugary drinks, after those are gone, and after people kind of learn to look for things they can't pronounce on a nutrition label, what will be your next move for something? Like that? Movement. Movement. So Movement. That, that's pretty much the basics of diet you would have them do, and then it's on exercise? Yeah. Because um, those would be like the three easy starts. Because if you eliminate fast food and you eliminate the sugary drinks and you, you start to look at labels a little more closely, it gives you a bit of freedom. Sure. Um, you know, and you don't have to have like this perfect, uh, to use a, an expression you used, this, this granola, yeah. you know, hippie tree hugger, I only eat all natural foods. You know? Which may not even matter. Yeah. Right? yeah. You don't have to eat like that to eat healthy. Sure. You can eat something out of a box just for Yeah. Okay. Just don't go to fast food. Sure. You know, if you're if you have to go through a drive through window, okay, I understand sometimes we get in a hurry. Lifestyles do kind of trump yeah. sometimes. And absolutely, but there are yeah. healthier options. I want to kind of cover this bit of oh no, I got fast food or oh no, I drank a soda. Yeah. Guys, we are not advocating perfection. Human beings, human lifestyles. It's all about what you do more often and what you do less often, and to what intensity. Avoid, avoid right. what you know is bad. 
pursue more of that which you know is good for you. Find a balance. Always balance is very important. It was what kept me alive for a long time was just finding that happy medium in between what I was used to doing and what I knew I needed to do instead. And Because, you know, we talk about the changing behavior. It doesn't happen overnight. And if you just force yourself to abandon everything you know and are comfortable with, and take on this new thing, you can, you're pretty much setting yourself up to fail. Absolutely. So baby steps, okay? So if you typically will swing by McDonald's on your way home from work and grab a burger, how about instead of that, stop at the grocery store and pick up, you know, some things to make tacos. Yeah. Tacos are super easy to do. I mean, but if you're really craving a burger, get stuff to make a burger. Sure. Plan ahead. Sure. You know? Um, or even with that, like you're in the mood, just you still really don't want to cook. That, mm-hmm. That's usually my thing. I really just don't want to cook today. So I'm just going to go and pick something up. Have a salad. Sure. And I mean, I mean, th- I mean, there's always an option. Sure. You always get to choose. And if you do go to a grocery store and you're like, I don't have the energy or discipline to cook because I've got three kids and I work two jobs and I make $700 a month. And, yeah. You know, that certainly happens. But you can go to the grocery store for maybe an extra 10 minutes of investment mm-hmm. and pick something up that's already pre-made for you. Oh, yeah. And it's certainly not going to be like the most awesome thing in the world, but it's going to be more affordable and it's going to be more effective than, say, McDonald's or Wendy's or something. I want to add a couple tips, too, that I tell people who are just starting out um, on top of yours. I agree with everything you said, and I say a lot of the same things. I would say um, a multivitamin. You can go to the dollar store for like 11 bucks and you get a big old jar of um, little gummies. And you eat two little gummy bears that hit all the major multivitamins you need. And the latest research I read, I can't remember the name of the author, but it's on National Institute of Health. You can look it up in PubMed. And uh, they say that a good multivitamin setup is about 83% as effective as getting it all naturally. And if you're not getting it at all, then that's 0%. Yeah. And 83% is certainly a lot better. And not, I'm, I'm exaggerating. Zero means you'd be dying. You're <laughs> probably hovering around 50 if because, you know. But... Artificial but not perfect efficiency is better than not having it at all, exactly. right? And it's anybody can have the willpower to pick up two uh, gummy worms or gummy uh, bears or whatever and shove them down their throat and get okay. your vitamins for the day, right? So I would add that in for sure. Um, another thing I would think of to keep diet very simple, flash frozen or frozen vegetables, they're not as, they're not as nutrient-dense or as... Um, probiotically active is fresh stuff of course but it's good enough if you're in poverty and your diet is awful it's and a good way to start yeah and you were going to just throw it in a pan and bake it with some olive oil anyway um, when you cook something you kind of destroy a lot of the point of eating it raw to begin with so you could save a lot of money by getting flash frozen stuff as a fix for now and from a diet perspective I'm going to um, I'm going to cite a guy Abel James who has the um the wild diet, and he about half of your plate should look like above-ground vegetables. Leafy greens, things of that nature, peppers, things like that. That should make up about half of your plate. Another quarter of your plate should be lean proteins, like, um, you know, grass-fed beef if you can, or something like that. Um, And the last quarter of it should be healthy fats, generally through nuts or avocados or something along that nature, you know. And that's a really simple way to look at a plate, ideally. And again, you may not actually be able to go grab the salad, go cook this and cook that, but where you want to eventually go is to have a plate that looks half like raw vegetables uh, or lightly cooked vegetables, a quarter of lean meat, and a quarter of healthy fats. 
I know that in health, up until recently, fat has gotten a huge stigma. Oh. Right. So, could you tell us, a, you know? <laughs> oh, because it's such a it's such a silly thing. Sure. Um, the, the stigma that I always kind of felt and observed and witnessed was that the word itself, sure. fat, wasn't uh, isn't, isn't always used as a noun. It's used as a descriptor of someone who has an excess of adipose tissue. Sure. I mean, okay, all human beings, even the healthiest people in the world, have some percentage of fat. Well, you die around 3%. As yeah, a guy, I mean, as a even like the yeah. leanest people in the world at 6% of body fat, I mean, these people have to work very, very hard sure. to get that number that low. And, and they crash really, their immune system. Yeah, it's really dangerous. It's very, very dangerous. Sure. Um, for me right now, I don't know what my percent body fat is right now, but and, and I'm of course I've, I've got this mindset of having been obese before. It's like oh my gosh, I've got these squishy parts. Sure, I'm getting fat. I'm getting fat. Well, no, I have fat sure. because it's an important part of existence. And it's not an identifier, right? Like yeah, um, when the moment. And guys, this is equally bad if your identity is wrapped up in a gym or an exercise. It's like no, your exercise is something you perform to live better. You don't. Your life is not the exercise, right? Yeah. Uh, but by that same token, people can assume those labels. And here we're going back to the therapist side. Uh, I am fat. No, you are a person with extra adipose tissue. Yes. Right? And it's interesting because the word fat doesn't even correlate to how you obtain that adipose tissue. So like. I mean, bad fat profiles, like what you'll get at McDonald's, that's not even the stuff that's going to make you fat. It will clog your arteries and give you heart problems. It's still not good. But um, the th- what actually gets people fat? Like well, the, so, the, the energy them, balance. Yeah. When, and, when, you're, when you're consuming more than your body is actually using sure. to fuel activities, even, you know, to go as simple as, like, breathing, uh, the, the act of digesting, those all take calories, and which of course calorie is a dangerous yeah. word, also just sure. like fat. You know, because people think, oh, it's it's got these calories. I need fewer calories. No, no, your yeah. body requires calories. Just uh, the calories calories needed for your body to perform its basic biological functions, like breathing, blinking, stuff like that. Twelve hundred. 1,200 calories for a day. So if you're not even consuming 1,200 calories a day, then you're in a serious. Deficit, you're in a yeah. serious, you know, situation. You could die. Sure. So if you're consuming too much, then what you're actually using for your non-biological activities throughout the day, like getting up, taking a shower, going for a walk, going to the gym, going to work, sitting down, standing up, maybe you go do um, a one-hour workout program at the gym. Okay, you're burning calories. And yes, your balance of your proteins to fats and carbs are very important, but they all add up to calories. And so if you're consuming so much more than what you're using, all that extra gets kind of stored. Sure. And then to add on to that, we have this word fats, which we call um, lipids, or which are what lipids are in science. But people think fat equal fat in your mouth equals fat on your hips. And the I'm going to finish. It's not that way. It's not that way at all. Uh, granted, you can eat anything, and if you eat a vast amount too much of it, it will become that. Um, but it's actually carbohydrates and sugars that are going to be more likely to, per calorie, put on more extra adipose tissue as storage, right? Yep. So with a, a fat profile, don't go, don't be afraid of fats. Um, for other reasons, avoid the bad ones, because we don't want you to have heart attacks either. But yeah, so that's what a that's that fat fear. But 
when you think about good fats, what can you tell us about like what the good ones do for you? Oh my gosh, I have to drag up into my science lesson. We actually just finished covering this in, in, in class last Perfect. week. Oh. Um, with the good fats, I mean, you're probably better equipped to talk about this. Who knows? Who knows? I'll, I'll chime in. You know, yeah. but, yeah. Um, really, I, I am drawing a bit of that's a okay. That's okay. We, this, this last class that we, we covered literally everything, and so sure. it's, it's all still kind of swarming around. Kind of like head. this podcast episode. We yeah. touched meditation. We've, we've been all yeah. over everything. And, um, yeah, so I guess with healthy fats, I'll take this one and we'll just tighten it up. And then right. I want to give some time to talk. I know we're coming up in a while now. It's uh, 2.30. So I want to also talk about your fitness piece and your GOQA okay. program. So I want to leave plenty of time for that. Okay. Um, so healthy fats, you need them. You need them to support cells. You need them to form your endocrine system's chemicals, which tell you how to think and feel and, and do. You absolutely need these healthy fats, even for cognition. Okay. And I'm going to go into a, a, whenever I can't find a great interview guest like Lachey, you're going to hear me running my mouth alone. And I'll spend one of those times talking in detail about nutrition. But um, there is nothing to fear from things like avocados, omega-3s, fish oils, nuts, things like that. If you consume a healthy amount that is no more than a fourth of what you're doing, then you're going to be in good shape as that need goes. Right? I do want to kind of offer a counterpoint to the thing about the 1,200 calories. Um, if you are below 1,200 calories, you are absolutely in a deficit. But especially with the intermittent fasting and things like that, don't be scared to be below 1,200 for a day or two. That won't kill you. But I think what Lachey's talking about is like months and months and years of caloric yeah, deficit. You live in a state of, of deficit, yeah. that becomes dangerous because then your body is looking for something. Sure, and then, well, then you start to lose bone density, you start to lose muscle mass, things like that. But um, intermittent fasting is a whole other animal, but... Basically, you are. You're, it's okay if you go a day or two with fewer calories, but overall, your habit should be that bare minimum of what you're doing, right? Um, to to carry on with that, it's one of the reasons why I've um, Fitbit. It's a wonderful thing. Um, of course, for the heart rate, you know, there's been a lot of speculation and and people saying, okay, well, it can't be trusted entirely. Yeah, you're right. Nothing can really be trusted entirely. Um, but it brings you an awareness. It goes sure. back to that mindfulness. Um, I'm able to track, give or take a few digits, how many calories I burn throughout a day from midnight to 11.59 p.m. And you're saying numbers, not zeros, right? Because you know, you're not yeah. talking hundreds or thousands of different. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. Z- uh, zero, um, zero calories on a, on a typical day, including my 1,200 for basic functions, you know, give or take. Um, on a typical day, I will burn 2,400. Okay. Um, some days it's higher, some days it's a little lower. So I already have this awareness, okay, so I, I definitely should not eat over 2,400 calories today. Sure. I mean, because that just kind of makes sense. And so if I already have this awareness, I've, I've worked on cleaning up my diet, I'm, I'm kind of aware on typically how much a meal is going to, you know, provide me as far as an energy input. So, okay, so this meal is going to be about 500 calories worth of energy. All right, good. My lunch will be maybe 600 or 700 calories. It's good. All right. So I know not to go over my, my budget. And that, that's, that's just mindfulness. It's awareness. You know, calories are, is one of those, those words. They see it on a label and they think, oh, well, that's too many, that's too many calories. And then also, too, when we talk about, you know, not all calories are created equal, that's, you know, it can create a dangerous buzzword. Mm-hmm. 
So if you follow that recommendation, eventually you work yourself up to that point where half your plate looks like fibers, yep. a quarter of it looks like lean protein, and a quarter of it looks like healthy fats. If you do that, and you do go slightly over your calorie margin, and not even slightly, but a good amount over, um, for example, to use that 2,400 calorie example, I would say you'd be better off hitting 3,000 calories if half of them were raw fibers oh, yeah. than fibers. doing, say, 2,500 of Mickey D's, yeah. right? So it's not purely about the number of calories. The type you take in absolutely matters, you know? And I think um, before we switch away from the nutrition topic, what do you think is like the – because we've just blasted a lot of information yeah, for people. Yeah, definitely a lot, yeah. If you were a new person like, oh, at your worst or at my worst or whatever, it's like – what would I want to close this discussion off knowing? Don't. Uh, mm, like a takeaway? Yeah. Uh, I would I would say don't ever forget that you are a magical being and that you are capable of great and wonderful things. It's going to be hard. It's going to take time. But it is possible. Sure. Um, I consider myself to be proof that even the seemingly impossible is made possible. Sure. It just takes time. It takes effort. And so don't give up on yourself. That would that would be my A number one thing if you, if you don't remember anything else. From, so for the diet piece, don't give up, yeah. Yeah. the persistence. Persistence, right? yeah. yeah. And that, it really goes for everything. Persistence. Don't give up. Don't give up on yourself. Don't put down on yourself. Don't ever feel defeated. Just keep going. Keep trying. You know, if you fail or if you struggle, try a new way. Try something different. Find what works for you. Because what works for me, what works for you, may not work for anyone else on the face of the planet. So just keep trying. And that being said, though, there are some universality, some commonalities that are just understood, right? Um, we may have slight biochemical differences between gender and whatever background, genetics, but universally, if I eat half McDonald's and she eats half um, raw vegetable salads, fibers, she's going to have a, uh, going to have a much better time than I am, regardless of our slight differences by comparison. You know? So that's good to know. Be persistent. And I would add to, don't get lost in the complication. Yeah. Just keep it real smooth, real simple, real easy. Um, being stubborn and being consistent is way more important than being smart. <laughs> so what I want to switch gears to, um, let's talk about what you do with Banqua. Okay. Am I saying that right? Absolutely you are. <laughs> Good. Okay. Awesome. I've heard it pronounced so many different ways. Okay. But yes, it is Banqua. Um, it was developed in, I want to say, the early 2000s. Um, by a gentleman named Paul Mavi. Uh, he is of the Zulu tribe of okay. South Africa. And, uh, okay, so to break down the word itself, Bokwa, B-O-K-W-A. Uh, the K-W-A is for Kwaito, which is a tribal dance that came out of South Africa uh, that was really popular in the 90s. Um, that was kind of developed in response to apartheid. Okay. Um, so it was a way for the young people, men and women, um, and community members to express their freedom and their individuality during a time when they really didn't have so much freedom. Sure. And so Paul, when he moved to Los Angeles uh, in the early 2000s, he, he took about eight years developing a program uh, using this Kwaito style of dance um, and developing it in such a way that anyone can do it. Because in South Africa, to be able to perform the Kwaito dance, you had to master it. You had to do it perfectly, or you weren't allowed to perform. 
But he wanted to make it so that anyone can do it. Any age, any fitness level. Okay. You didn't have to be a dancer. You didn't have to be an athlete. You could be in your 80s or you could be 8. Okay. And you would still be able to participate. So the B-O in Boqua stands for boxing. So typically, um, the dance, you know, the, the fitness program itself combines elements of that kwaito dance and boxing and kickboxing. Okay. Um, so... I prefer to teach the version of Boca that's basically no dancing <laughs> okay. and is just the punching and you know uppercuts and, and jabs and, and stuff like that. So one thing that I always like to tell people who come to my first class is if you're not going to master it in one day, sure. that's the beauty of it. You don't have to do it perfectly. Um, people who want something that's easy and simple, they're not going to come to Boca. You come to Boca because you want the challenge. You want the fun. You want, I mean, even with, with the challenge that you get, the physical and the mental challenge, you still leave with a smile on your face because so, it's just so much fun to do. And I can speak from a personal perspective. I was a professional kickboxer in southern Thailand for about six months. And the actions involved in kickboxing are basically just high-intensity interval-type training mixed with strength endurance. And, yeah, you will shred every part of your body uh, to high caloric burn doing so and very quickly it doesn't have to be a long session of say working a bag to burn yourself out effectively so what do the session lengths look like um a typical class will go an hour okay um i have taught some half sessions um and i've also had a couple of classes go over to about an hour and a half but it's definitely it's, it's a high intensity cardio class so the idea is you want to get your heart rate up and keep it up sure. for the duration of the class and, and to not really let it drop too much because you get it up and you stay up and you're, you're burning the whole time. If you let it drop too far, then you kind of like, sure. you turned off the system and you got to amp it back up again. And that tends to be very exhausting for people. Sure. So you come up, stay up, power through, and then cool down at the end. And then, you know, you get the endorphins, sure. you know, rushing. Um, but yeah, typically a class will go about an hour. Another, a couple of points I'm thinking about that. And um, so I know in in kickboxing, when you're working the bag, it's combination cardio and it's interval training type stuff. Really a class, whether it's jiu-jitsu, kickboxing, anything like that, you tend to break up the high-intensity physical activity or the fighting rounds to about five, ten minutes tops. And then you have like a lower period of um, sort of instruction for the technical piece. Um, twist your hips this way, align your stance like that, angle this. And so it gives you a bit of a break where you go back into another round of intensity in another five, ten minutes. And so there's this rise and fall, and that seems to be different. Um, the way the way a class will typically go is, um, I'll take about the first, okay, um, going under the assumption that I have a class with people who have never done the program sure. before and are not familiar with how it works. I'll take about the first five or ten minutes and we'll warm up, and I'll show them like some of the basic easy, easy steps. Um, and then we'll do those, and we'll do them a lot, and then we'll add little steps just these little things to do a little differently and then we'll they call them remixes where you so okay so I showed you this step and then I showed you this other step and now we're going to add another step and make it special and different and so like all the steps in Bogwa um, basically the idea is you're making the shapes of letters and numbers on the floor with your feet Okay. and you know it goes to the beat of the music so when the music's really you know excited pumping then your, your, your intensity level okay. is up with music, but if the music comes down, you come down too, but you're moving. Sure. So there, there's the that time. naturally integrated way to sort of keep your body going. So yeah. I think like, you know, if you are at top intensity, 
um, I think like a wind sprint or something, after one minute, two minutes, three minutes, you probably want to keel over and puke. Yeah. So there's got to be some level of rhythm and balance. So it seems like the music is that level. Yeah, the music is um, all original, um, uh, remixed playlist using uh, international popular radio hits. You know, okay. music that practically everyone can identify with. Okay. Um, and it's remixed specifically to be at 130 beats per minute. Um, instructors will typically even use a, um, a tempo modifier to make the music go just a little bit, a little faster, or even a little slower if you need to kind of slow it down. Like for example, you have people who have um, ankle or knee injuries and maybe can't do some of the more explosive movements. You know, you think of you know older, older generations. Uh, then you would slow down the music a little bit so that they can still participate, sure. still have fun without risk of injury. And that's an interesting point, right? Because like I think about. I've never done large group fitness classes as an instructor. I'll take small groups at most, uh, maybe no more than like five is just sort of how I'll do it. Because um, then I think about the danger of if you have high-intensity large groups and then you run into a CrossFit-type scenario where the injury rate is so high it's become famous. You know, So it sounds like music's another uh, serves a secondary function of keeping people within a safe limit. Um, how do you guys kind of like monitor the situation with newer people to sort of see to it that they don't push They them. include that in training to become um, an instructor. Okay. Um, it's To be an instructor for Boca is very, very all-encompassing because there's so many things that you have to think about. You have to think about the music. Uh, you have to think, you teach the class to the people who are there and not just to what you want to do for a class. Sure. Um, so if I've got a class of all new people, let's, uh, for example, I have a lady who's been coming to one of the classes to teach. She's got to be 80. Mm-hmm. And I even offered to her last week, okay, well, if you want to take it easy today, we can just do we can do the dance version instead of the, the more intense version. She's like, honey, if I wanted to dance, I would go to Zumba. I like my cardio kickboxing. And I'm like, all right, let's go. Okay. Let's yeah. do it. Um, and so, and she's been, has a shoulder injury. So check in with people beforehand. Oh yeah. You definitely doing. always have a conversation, you know, even if they don't tell you, I make sure, or tell me, I should say, I make sure to say at the beginning of the class, if you have trouble with your knees or ankles, or if you have shoulder issues, you don't have to do the full motions. If you need me to show you a modification, I am happy to do so. Otherwise you go at your own pace. You're going to see me doing these crazy things. I'm going to be bouncing all over the room. You don't have to do that. This is your workout. This is your uh, opportunity to express your individuality and your your freedom. So you do what you're comfortable with. Don't push yourself too hard, but challenge yourself as far as you can. So we've done a lot of discussion even before Boqua about, like, how do people get started if they're, you know. So I want to take... There are plenty of places someone can learn how to get started with exercise, but mm-hmm. with your experience, what do you see being some sort of um, misconceptions and some kind of mistakes people make? Um, with pursuing exercise, exercise. Boca, anything along those lines? Well, for group fitness, I think a hang-up that a lot of people have is, oh, they're going to see me, mm-hmm. or I'm not going to do it right, or... You know, in the case of a, a, a dance style class, oh, I'm not a dancer. People are going to make fun of me. I don't dance. Sure. I am not a dancer. <laughs> That's why I tend to not teach the dance class because, like, I'm a child of the '80s. I want to bust out with Carlton <laughs> whenever I think of dancing. Okay. Uh, and so that's always a big hang-up for doing a group fitness class. Is there's that embarrassment sure. factor. Um, and then gyms as well. Right? Yeah, and, and in the gyms, they go back to that fat stigma. Sure. You know, if a person says. Maybe not 100 pounds overweight, but maybe 40 or 50 pounds overweight. 
and you know, maybe they don't have workout clothes and they literally just show up in shorts and a, and a loose t-shirt and you know you hear these horror stories uh, of people being made fun of for being overweight at a gym like to use the example of the model who took a picture of uh, a lady who had some you know some fat deposits on her body she had adipose tissue Sure. And the model, you know, is basically was sued for, you know, do you, are you familiar with I'm not familiar with the story, story, no. Oh, yeah, it was a very famous model. I can't remember her name off the top of my head. Probably for the uh, best. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus. She already Cease did and desist letter. Yeah, she, she already instructor. did enough for herself. <laughs> <laughs> um, she basically took a selfie of her, you know, a selfie in a locker room at her gym. And there was a lady in the background um, who was changing clothes. I guess maybe she had just taken a shower or something. And, well, what's uh, a picture being taken in a locker room for to begin with? It was specifically to, like, oh my gosh, this woman's naked. Like, oh my God, she's so fat. Yeah. And so it was this kind of, you're making fun of someone who's actually trying to better themselves. Sure, absolutely. And so I would say that's definitely another big hang-up is the, the, the fear of, oh, you're going to get pointed at. Sure. Well, what is this What is this fat person? Sorry, I'm using air quotes. No, no, that's this, fine. this fat person. Uh, doing in this gym. That's definitely ironic voice, by the way. Yeah, I was air quotes, air quotes. So, but you know, there's a reason that makes the news. And in my years of working as a fitness trainer, military, gyms for college, gyms for community, I've only ever seen in probably about 12 years of weightlifting, one place or one instance that sticks out to me in many, many years of anyone ever being made fun of at a gym, and it was a college gym, and I'm not going to list which one, and that person got rebuked by, like, half the gym immediately, um, which can be equally embarrassing for someone who's, you know. Yeah. But the instance of people being unsupportive, at least in my experience, I haven't done any studies on this, is so rare as to be almost, like, not, not, not non-existent, but really, really, really the minority. And I think if someone does go to a community environment, be it a gym, be it a class, the reality is for every one person who might make fun of someone, you'll probably see a thousand instances of someone being in some way supportive. Yeah, definitely. I didn't start actively going to a gym until last fall. Uh, And it it was just at the the gym on campus here at UNO. Um, That was the first time I'd ever stepped foot into a gym and, like, walked upstairs and I see all these weight machines. That's uh, University of New Orleans for our (laughs) non-local listeners. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Um, yeah, I walked in and I would go upstairs and there's all these weight machines and I'm completely overwhelmed. But you know what? There was there was a girl up there who said, okay, well, this is how you do this. This sure. is how you adjust the seat. And I have not once ever experienced. I think in those situations where you think, oh, I'm going to get made fun of or I heard this terrible sure. story, those are the exceptions. Absolutely. There's a reason that yeah. you make news. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's like you, you get this one extraordinary event and it catches everyone's attention. So then that one event becomes gets applied like oh it happens everywhere this is just a thing that happens as we see it in media all the time especially like tv shows movies where i mean i can't think of anything sure. off the top of my head, but you understand what i'm saying yeah. and so it's just you go for yourself sure. you go for your own personal betterment with no regard of what anyone may or may not say to or about you and even still a negative experience there is extremely uncommon yeah, very, very uncommon. So what do you see some people that are just starting to work out, or maybe been doing it for years, what are some mistakes that you see in the process? Wanting to do too much too fast. Yeah, getting too ambitious. Yeah, yeah um, if you're, you know, if you go in, you think you got to do weightlifting. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's great. 
but not warming up sufficiently before and not cooling down enough after, not taking care of your muscles, not eating a, a proper diet to go yeah, along sure. with that kind of activity because, you know, your muscles require the protein to, to regenerate. And so you think, you know, I've got to starve myself, I've got to eat low, I'm going to go in the gym and I'm going to hit the weight so hard, I'm going to go for two hours and I'm just going to, I'm just going to go hard. And you know what, and they then, may actually be able to do it. Once. Once. And then they go home, they wake up the next day, and they're in so much pain. Is sure. this wonderful? Not so wonderful. Sorry. Ironic voice again. Uh, delayed onset muscle soreness. Yeah. I've done it to myself. It is horrible. Legs are the worst. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, definitely. I've had it uh, basically from elbow to elbow all the way across. I, I, I went a little harder on my arm day. And, and it, it was. I woke up the next morning, and not only could I not really sit up out of bed, I couldn't put my shirt on. And it, sure. it really does disrupt. So that becomes a, oh, well, this is how it's going to be every time I go to the gym. If I'm going to be in this much pain, then, huh, I don't want to do Certainly. this. You know, um, and I will say this, that delayed onset of muscle soreness is not a bad thing. It's to be expected. Mm-hmm. But if you're new and your intensity is too high for what you're used to, the we call it the DOMS, the delayed onset of muscle soreness, will become more intense than you're really accustomed to. And also, if you overdo it, you not only feel real pain, but you actually minimize your results that way. Yep. And I think some, other, some things that I see um, that are problematic is the biggest thing I see is people say, I want to improve this part of my body. Yeah. You know, I want tighter abs. I want bigger arms. And they're not necessarily interested in the whole picture. right? Yeah. And it's like, if you want one thing, you have to have it all. I don't want to hear, I'm not a cardio guy. I hate that. I don't want to hear, I'm not a, a strength training guy. There is no imbalance that's going to treat you well. What I've actually found for myself, and maybe you can um, either correct me if I'm wrong or support me with your with your education of these sorts of things, um, I have found that I feel like I'm able to be more productive in my strength workouts sure. if I do a little cardio before. Well, certainly. It's, yeah. we, we talk about the system connection, right? And mm-hmm. You talked about mind, body, spirit. And, I can't really speak to spirit because that's not really a scientific type thing. Um, but I can say that when you feel connected and um, altruistic, you are activating a part of your brain, the parietal node. And when all these systems are working in order, you tend it tends to reinforce itself, right? Like um, you'll have counter-inflammation benefits from having a good mood that make you recover faster from exercise. And then if you exercise, you'll uh, spread lymph through your body. And then you'll help lower uh, inflammation in the long term. And then if you're eating well, it reinforces both things. And if you're meditating, then so it all, you can't just isolate what you want and hope to neglect the stuff that's not sexy, that's not fun. Exactly. We've really covered a lot. We have, yeah. (laughs) So this is a fun question and quite controversial. Okay. How do you feel that your your field, and we'll call your field... um, Fitness coaching, is that what you... Um, I would say health promotion. Health promotion. Health, health promotion, which incl- would include fitness. Okay. So let's say the health promotion field, and I guess I fall under that umbrella as well. How do you feel that this field could improve for the public? And this was also something we, we touched on briefly um, beforehand. Um, professionals in the field using assess- accessible language. Yeah. You know, make it... Because we can use all these big words, lipids and, and things, but the, the typical person is not going to understand a lot of that jargon that we're familiar with. Certainly. And, and so that would be, that was, I would say that's definitely something that needs to, 
to alter in some way because we want to be able to share the information we're gaining with people. Like in my situation, I, I Googled a lot. I encountered a lot of articles, you know, very good articles, you know, not just mobile that would have made much more sense to me if it had been simply written in terms I could understand. Or could you have to pour through like 40 pages of statistical data to yeah. get to the actionable con- uh, conclusions? Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, for and sure. Making it usable to a person who does not have the same level of education that we as professionals Certainly. have. Certainly. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm thinking that when you say education, you're not saying intelligence. You're saying specialized training and vocabulary and processes. Exactly. Right? I mean, you can yeah. be the most intelligent person in the world, but if you haven't pursued a set of education like knowledge about a thing sure then you can you can be smart all day you can be a very smart person but i'm not going to trust you to you know to advise me on a subject that you don't really have that information does that make sense absolutely and you know i think about it too and your your point about people in academia or in research or in science being better at communicating to the general public um, is a really big thing and i'd say in addition to that i'll i'll Piggyback onto that, I think that we need to be more interested in being good at communicating to the public. Definitely. Um, It blows my mind that we have the majority of science funded by um, either a corporate special interest group for that particular field, and then they could shave off the data that's not convenient to their product. Oh, gosh, it's the worst. Or it's funded by the National Institute of Health or Mental Health, and then there's no accountability with that data to do an element of um, dissemination. And... So in other words, you can take taxpayer money, do your research, learn great stuff, and keep it to yourself. Like, you have to disclose it in PubMed and all these other things and go through institutional review boards. But you take government money, and you learn something cool, and then you don't make that productive to the public somehow. So it's I like think it gets to a certain point, yeah. and then the movement stops. Right. So you do all this work. You produce this, this academic writing. And you send it through all, you know, you send it through the mill to be accepted or, or sure. rejected. Published and all and that. then it stops. Right. Because, you know, you've done your job, you put it into a publishing journal, but there's no degree for reading published work and translating it to public use. Yeah. Right. And I think that somebody has to take responsibility first. And I feel like academia has failed to a great degree in that regard. It's getting better, but in history it has failed so far. And it's now these sort of layman professionals and interested people and your um, at-home amateur researchers that are kind of picking up the ball. And the problem with that is they don't always do it effectively. you know. And so if we can have this accountability connection between practical language backed by people who've done the research... And I think this is something that they've been talking about when you think of um, promoting the STEM fields. They, they tell people all the time, okay, as a scientist, scientists need to speak more plainly whenever they you know, discuss what they're doing so that we can encourage more people to want to become scientists you know, or work in a STEM field. That really applies to all fields. It's not just to, to STEM fields, you know, which are very uh, complicated and technical fields. Um, in talking about health promotion or anything related to health, we can use all the big words all day, but the typical, you know, American sure. or anyone in the world really is not going to be able to take that information and digest it and make it theirs and actually put it to use. Certainly. Because, I mean, even if you go to your general physician, it's like, hey, I've got this problem. What is usually what happens? Oh, here, take this pill. We'll, we'll run this test. Certainly. You know, and that doesn't really 
help you at all. How good's your insurance? Oh, it's a little... Okay, we'll run three tests. Oh, it's a good insurance, we'll run seven tests. Yeah, pretty much. Right. You know, Western medicine, for all the good it has done, sure. uh, really does fail in helping get people back out Certainly. of a condition. And so that's where I feel like we empower people to do for themselves if they are able to understand what we're telling them. Certainly. And you're talking yeah. about understanding. And it's yeah. interesting that both of... I didn't create my answer in response to your answer... Um, we both came up with the, the communication needs to get better yeah, uh, between academia and <laughs> practitioners and public. And I guess because we have, we're in no shortage of information in this world. We're in a shortage of proper filtering of information. So how do you recommend to people to separate valid information from hysteria? Okay, number one, take everything with a grain of salt. Um, And then number two, look at the source. Certainly. Um, Educate yourself on what the, uh, what a good source is. Like, I'm not going to go to, I'm not going to read this article and take it all as, you know, the gold standard if, A, it has not been published by a reputable, you know, a reputable source. Okay, um, what's an example? Um, Oh my gosh, I'm drawing a blank, so many blanks. The... Journal. Oh my gosh, I feel so, like I need to get my phone. Okay. Yeah, peer-reviewed stuff, I guess you're talking about, is one yeah, option. Yeah, okay, so if I'm reading an article and at the end it's like a published by or, you know, these other references mm-hmm. or resources, okay, so is there a reference? Can sure. I actually follow this information and, and look and see, okay, just recognize what the reputable publishers are. Because um, sure. if it's a scholarly article, um, right. it's going to be reviewed. It's right. got to be looked at, and that review board is going to be what says, okay, this is good science, and this is not sure. good science. One thing I'll keep in mind, too, you have a lot of bad information stuffed with irrelevant references. Yeah. So if the average person who even means well, right, they'll go, okay, what's the source? And, they'll, and it'll say, like, source, da 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 yeah. And most people that write these blogs and articles know that you're not going to go click on all those hyperlinks and dig through exactly. 50 pages. So they'll throw anything on there. And so it's really important that if you are looking for to trust something, take, the time take a breath, yeah. click on the references, yeah. cross-reference also what you see in that source to what's in this source. And you have to be really careful with some uh, articles in that they'll have this labyrinth of like uh, resource laundering where yeah. they'll, they'll say, refer to this to get the information that justified that I said this. But then you go to that article and it'll say, refer to this, refer to this. And it'll become this circular logic where you never actually find a legitimate source. So I would say if you see an article that references you to something that just simply references you to something else, don't trust articles where their first-line resources are hearsay. Yeah, it's like definitely look at, look at where the information is coming from. Because if, if, otherwise, you know, it'll just feel like they're pulling it out of a hat, sure. which is essentially what happens with bad, you know, bad sure. information. So, grain of salt, for sure. Like, read it. It may be good science, but again, everyone is different to a point. Reserve uh, judgment. Yeah, check reserve the source. Judgment. Check your sources. Don't be afraid to click and click and click and actually see where where this information came from. Take the time. You know, if you're really interested in learning about something, you're hoping to gain some information, make yourself take just a few minutes and click through and do a little bit of reading. It may be hard to read, but, you know, it's it's a, it gets to be a little bit of common sense where you can just, it makes it makes sense. I'm going like to give well 
that's a great point. And I'm going to give you all a, a real time-saving tip to go through a lot of research articles really quickly. Um, if you aren't interested in the statistical methods covered for your own educational purposes, and you just want to know, well, what's the point? What's the good information? You can go to the end of the journal article right before it has a mountain of references, and you look where it says conclusions. And it'll probably be less than a page, and it'll summarize the next 49 pages ahead of it. So it looks like a mountain, but if you just find the peak of it, and you go, okay, what do the conclusions say? If you can dig in that, you'll save yourself a lot of time. Yeah, definitely go to the conclusion. Um, what I will typically do, only because I'm not afraid of reading some of the technical sure. jargon, is I'll read the abstract sure. as well. So I'll read the abstract um, as I'm flipping through. If there's some charts or graphs or whatever, I'll kind of just eyeball over and say, okay, so what is this data they're providing to me? And then I'll just go to the conclusion. And by that point, I've, I've gathered enough information sure. about the writing to be able to make a judgment for myself. Like, okay, do I want to trust this Source. Is this source, or is this who we... And then, you know, there's also concurrent validity, right? Because I've, I've heard that up to 40% or more, or whatever, and I don't... I didn't read the source for this, but I've heard that a large number of... Especially within qualitative research, a large amount of research is not repeatable across laboratories, right? Yeah. Um, the sample you get might throw things off very often. So concurrent validity just means have a bunch of reliable sources... That say the same things, you know. And if you can do that, you're going to be relatively assured that you've got good information driving your strategies. Sadly, though, um, a lot of people are um, either not interested in, in educating themselves in quite this manner, or um, become very intimidated so, by by, yeah. by the mountain of available information that there is. You know, not even counting the jargon itself. Like, okay, so you do a, a search on Google articles pertaining to, um, for example, nutrition. Okay, okay. That's a very, very broad... Oh, my God, yeah. yeah. Like, and so you could have what, hundreds of thousands of articles pop up that cover every possible subject within the field of nutrition. Where does a person even start yeah. with that? And that's hard. Yeah, it is very hard. And, you know, for me, I wasn't able to get into a library, but libraries are very, very useful places. If you want to do good research, librarians are taught. I mean, yeah, there are, they know. They are the research gods. They're a doctoral student's best friend, yeah. Yeah. It's like, if you can get to a library, you really want help, and you want to get some real, real information, and you don't know how to search for yourself, or you get overwhelmed, Make a trip to the library. Sure. Yeah. And then, you know, that brings up another point, too. There is a real need for people who have done that scan of countless articles and data to communicate it to people that really can't afford the time to do that. Yeah. You know, I've given you some tips. Uh, Lachey's given you some tips on how you can dig for yourself if you care to. But then there's another option. Um, tune in to people who have done the research and this is kind of where the credentials come in, right? This is why, you know, why it's valuable to listen to someone who might be an MD or a PhD over someone who just has an opinion. Um, that doesn't mean the others don't just have an opinion, but you're going to be more likely to get people who are answerable for their for what they say. And so if you listen to people who put out, uh, in this case, podcasts or articles or videos, look for the credentials of the author, you know? Absolutely. And if you, you know, it's not a perfect method, but it's a real opening way to kind of filter out the trash from the value as far as information. And uh, if you can kind of keep what you listen to to people who have the um, outward credentials to do so, then great. 
Another thing I would watch out for, though, is if you go to these people that have these credentials, make sure that they are they have a two-way communication where they address people criticizing them back. Right? If someone comes from a top-down, you listen to me, you don't challenge me mentality, that's not what you want because there's some quackery most likely involved. Oh, yes. Oh, you know? so much. Um, and it's a shame because even MDs have made millions of dollars being quacks. You know? So expertise as verified through some board like a university and a two-way communication where they feel confident enough in their data and what they're saying to answer challenges. So how can people connect with you to learn more about what you do or to just sort of ask your perspective on things? Um, right now I do, um, I guess, all of my um, business networking through mm -hmm. Facebook. I have a professional uh, business page on there. Okay. Um, and it's just my name, Lachey Chatham, a health and wellness coach. Um, once I have my degree and I am established in my field, okay. um, then I will for sure have a more, uh, uh, what would be a way easily accessible, uh, sure. form of communication well, you're, contact. You're already doing something that a lot of people don't and I'm very impressed by. You're acquiring the credentials before you start to market yourself. Yeah. So I really appreciate that you're putting your, um, abilities before your fame. Yes, right. I mean, I was I was very hesitant, you know, when you asked me for the interview because I'm not really an expert. I'm only an expert in myself, and I only have my own experience to speak sure. on. But I know that even with the uniqueness of my experience, it's still very similar to what a lot of people live in their, you know, day-to-day, -day, the issues and struggles and, you know, personal obstacles that they have to overcome. I mean... I'm not immune to it. I still have the same challenges sometimes on a weekly basis. Absolutely. We're, yeah. we're not infallible. We're all human and we all struggle. And so just to sort of put this into context, because I do want to challenge that you're not expert yet, right? Okay. Um, because expertise is never a you have it and you're done, right? It's just a matter of magnitude. And so there's something that you're doing that I think is equally if not more valuable um, for podcast interviewing, which is not only are you developing your expertise in health, you're also a living laboratory as someone who engages in what is known to be good behavior. And more importantly, you have seen effective results from it for yourself. Absolutely. And so I think that having one person with stuffy letters behind their name and another person with stuffy letters behind their name, if they don't themselves practice, it's going to be vapid and uninspiring. Right? So I'm glad that you have this blend of expertise and, and practice where you can speak from a position of these are the effects I experienced. And you've gotten some of that with who you've worked with as well. Absolutely. So what would you want people to take away overall from everything we've talked about from being mindful of what you're doing, rec accepting and recognizing where you're starting from, um, learning some basic tips for your nutrition, learning about basics of exercise, and sort of uh, learning how to even learn. You know. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's that's probably the best thing is learn how to learn. Um, I think we, we developed this kind of apprehension. Um, you know, we talked about the nutrition and fitness, and we talked about a lot of things that for a lot of people are foreign uh, sure. subject matter. And so learn. Be willing to learn. Be willing to explore things that you've never considered before. Um, be willing to try something new. Be willing to step outside of yourself. 
sure. and push, find what your limits really are. Because I think we get comfortable in our little bubbles sure. and we never want to venture outside of that. So we just get trapped in this, you know, endless cycle yeah. of just being, just being trapped in ourselves. So be willing to expand, be willing to reach out. Let's, talk. let's say we're dealing with some, uh, someone who's listening that might not be in a great place okay. and they're like, um, well, Lachey or Ken, how, why should I do all this grueling effort? Why should I expend myself? I already lim- you guys told me we have limited resources. Why should I get up and do all these things or some of these things? It's so hard. <clears throat> what am I going to get out of it? Really? If I put in everything I'm doing, what's, what's the reward for me? Life. Life okay. is the reward. Okay. Life is the reward. You, I think, I think back to how I felt when I was 100 pounds overweight and had a terrible diet and just life was hard. Life was simply hard. Um, I didn't really, I wasn't really living. I was simply existing. I, I, I wasn't even really surviving. I, I felt like I was drowning more often than not. And so the more I went through the motions and sent out my bubble and, you know, went and put myself out there and learned and, you know, made the changes to my diet and start to, you know, become more active, I started to feel alive. And I think we forget what it feels like because we're just trapped. And, you know, so that first deep breath you take and when you wake up in the morning and you're actually in a good mood and it's like a down deep into your soul kind of good mood, that's living. And I think it takes... It takes work. It takes effort. It takes change. And I know it's hard. I know it's hard. I lived it. It's probably one of the most challenging things I've ever sure. done in my life. And I had a child with no, with no uh, anesthesia whatsoever. Ooh, okay. <laughs> my epidural didn't work. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So I've been through some pain, you know, yeah. brain tumor aside. And it is a very, very challenging thing. To brain do. tumor aside, that minor issue. <laughs> 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 yeah. okay. I had very, very good drugs for that, so okay. I, I didn't get to experience like the full front of the pain. So not only are we not endorsing terrorism, <laughs> we're also not endorsing drug use. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, okay. not endorsing drug use. It was all prescribed by my neurosurgeon. Um, so yeah, it is. It is challenging. It is challenging, but the reward is life. Sure. Um, and and you, you feel like you're living, but you're really not. I want to take that idea and everything that therapy evolved is about is understanding that we got to be in this place where the default mode is a lack of happiness because we built up this world around us that our bodies and brains are not designed to handle well, right? And so we, we go through an unsatisfying life that fails to trigger our body chemistry to feel that life as opposed to existence. And so what I'm hoping to do with this podcast is show that this is the origin of why we're in this zone. This is the consequence of being in the zone. This is how you get out of it. And this is the reward of doing all that hard work to get out of it. I think that you've done a beautiful, poetic description of the reward for doing all this hard work and learning. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it took me a long time to see the results for myself. Because, you know, I mean, I was sick. I was a sick person. And even after surgery, it was a process of relearning, reestablishing my own neural pathways with sure. the absence of, you know, a brain tumor in there. And really, like I said, it was that first morning I woke up and I took a deep breath and I actually felt good in my head, in my body. And it was after, you know, a year of consistently working on my diet, getting outside, you know, just right in the yard, you know, playing with the dogs and, you know, going for walks with my son. Um, just doing these little, little easy, basic things. I just woke up and took a deep breath and, oh my gosh, I'm alive. I'm really alive. I'm not just suffering anymore. 
I think I couldn't imagine a better reward. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, it's been an absolute pleasure doing this interview with you, and you were so gracious to give up your time to do this. Absolutely, I had no problem at all to do it. Okay. Do you have any questions or needs of me before we close out? Um, no, I, I'm, I'm thrilled to have had the opportunity awesome. uh, to, to speak with you now. Great, and I hope that we keep connecting and keep in touch. Absolutely, yeah. I'm happy to participate in whatever way I'm able. Be careful what you agree to. <laughs> <laughs> I am all about a challenge. <laughs> Thanks, Lachey. It's been an absolute pleasure. Right, thank you. Thank you for joining us today on the Therapy Evolve podcast. We at Paragon Wellness welcome your comments, questions, concerns, and suggestions for improvement. Feel free to contact us at paragoncounselor at gmail.com or drop us a comment at facebook.com slash paragonwellness. And always, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps us become noticed for better or for worse. While I am a licensed professional counselor, these podcasts are not meant to be taken as clinical intervention. If you are experiencing considerable emotional or lifestyle difficulty, it is highly encouraged that you contact a local wellness professional. Thanks again, guys. See you next week.